Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 31. If you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on page 959. For the past several weeks, we have been looking at a whole series of passages that uh, highlight the importance of living in community, the, the need that we have to live in fellowship with other believers. In Hebrews uh, chapter 3, for example, we, we saw that we must live in community with other believers in order that we might exhort one another daily and thereby uh, avoid the, the hardening that comes through the deceitfulness of sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, we saw that we must live in community so that we can speak the truth in love into one another's life because it is by this means, by, by speaking the truth in love to one another, that we grow up to mature manhood, that we attain to the full measure of the, the stature of Christ and, and are no longer children. In Colossians chapter 3, we saw that we must live in community with one another because it is in community that we are able to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and thereby that the word of Christ begins to dwell in us richly. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we saw that we must live in community and that we must gather together as a community regularly because we have been called to stir one another up to love and good works. That we have been called to to draw near to God in worship. And in that worship service, as we confess Christ as the reason for our hope, we remind one another of the purpose of our salvation. And so again and again and again, in one text after another, we have seen that we must live in community if we are going to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. It is in community that we are strengthened and encouraged to to live out the gospel, to live lives worthy of His name. And the last text that we are going to look at in that series, that, that series on the communion of the saints, is this text right here, 1 Corinthians Twelve. Now, we're not going to do it in one week, and you probably anticipated that already, but we're going to spend the next two, three, however long it takes weeks to go through this chapter and to see here the importance of, of living in community. And I want to end with this text because I'm, I'm guessing that as we have studied these other texts, as if we have heard our obligation, if we have heard what it is that we are, are called to, this, this work of, of ministry, this work that we sometimes call edification, building one another up towards Towards maturity in Christ. I, I am guessing that as you have heard that expounded week after week after week, you may have begun to say to yourself, you know, I'm not sure I can do that. In fact, you may have been more bold. You may have just said, I can't do that. I, I'm not up to that task. And what I want you to hear this morning is that you're right. You can't in yourself do this work that you have been called to do. In fact, Paul is uh, brutally honest in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, listen, no one is sufficient to be a minister of the gospel. No one is sufficient to, to speak this truth into the lives of others. Not in ourselves. We simply are not up to the calling. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, he goes on immediately to say, but our sufficiency is from Christ. It is Him who makes us 
competent. By His Spirit, Christ makes us sufficient to do what we have been called to do. So you may have been thinking, I can't do that. And you're right, but you're wrong. You're wrong because the Spirit dwells in you. And by the Holy Spirit, you are enabled to do all that you have been called to do. This work of ministry is possible because the immeasurable power of God, which raised Jesus Christ from the dead, is now at work in those who believe in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are going to see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In these verses, we are going to be looking at the idea of spiritual gifts. And in this idea of spiritual gifts, we are going to see that by the work of the Holy Spirit, according to His gracious will, we now have, not as individuals, but as a community, everything we need to build one another up towards maturity in Christ. And so let us read together 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but as I already said, we're not covering the whole chapter this morning, so don't get nervous. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning... At verse 1, listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who Apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where were the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching and the reading of his word here this morning. Father God, we do ask for your blessing. This is your word, inspired by your spirit for the good of your people. By it we have been born again to a living hope, and through it now we will be nourished to grow up in our salvation. Father God, we ask that you would cause our ears to be open, that you would cause our hearts to be receptive, that we might receive your word as truth and might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger, I always loved studying Paul's letters. They were, they were probably the, the part of Scripture that I gravitated to the most. But, but 1 Corinthians was always a little bit of an outlier. It was always just a little bit different because this letter isn't exactly like Paul's other letters. This letter is different because it is a response to a letter that Paul himself had received from the Corinthians. The, the Corinthians had, had gotten together and they had written down their questions and they had sent that letter to Paul. And so now Paul is responding to the letter that he had received from the Corinthians. And in the first half of this letter, in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the divisions in the congregation that that letter revealed. You know from experience that when, when two or more people or two or more parties come to you and they, and they want you to settle a dispute, it's because they couldn't resolve it themselves. When, you're, when your kids come to you and, and they want you to decide who gets the last cookie or who gets to sit in the best chair, it's because they are fighting about it. It's because they disagree about it. It's because they can't resolve the issue themselves. And so when Paul gets this letter from the Corinthians, he immediately realizes that there are divisions in the church. That they are fighting amongst themselves. And he, he spends the first part of the letter addressing those divisions. He, he spends the first part of the letter calling for unity in Christ and in his gospel. But once he has begun to address that, once he has has addressed the fact of the divisions, once he has called for unity, he then does begin to take up the questions that they had asked. And if you'll just flip back to chapter 7, you'll see this. You'll see at the very beginning of chapter 7, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he received the letter, he he responds to the divisions in the church that, that that letter revealed, but then he takes up the questions. He says, now, let me, let me address some of the questions that you asked, because, because there's reality in these questions, there's substance in these questions. The questions may have re- revealed something about your heart, but the questions themselves matter. And so he begins to address the questions that the Corinthians had asked, and he, he addresses questions about sexuality and marriage. Then he, he addresses questions about a food offered to idols. And then here in chapter 12, you'll see it again. He says, now concerning, 
That's the clue that he's taking up the next question. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And so here in these chapters, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul is going to address the question that the Corinthians had asked about spiritual gifts. Now it's difficult to know for certain, it's, it's difficult to know precisely what the question is that the Corinthians had asked, because Paul doesn't tell us. But, but rather, we can, we can piece it together a little bit. We know it has something to do, or at least it seems to have something to do with tongues. It seems to have something to do with whether or not tongues uh, uh, were uh, the most important gift, or whether they were even a, a necessary gift. But whatever the exact question that the Corinthians were asking Paul's answer is beneficial to us because he doesn't actually answer it. You see, when Paul hears the Corinthians' question about spiritual gifts, rather than addressing their question directly, he says, your question reveals such a fundamental misunderstanding. I'm going to go back to the beginning. If you've ever been a teacher, you, you, you know how this works. Sometimes your students ask a question that reveals such a fundamental misunderstanding of the subject that you actually have to start over. If you just answered that question, you wouldn't help them. Because there's a foundational level issue, and that's what's going on here. Paul says, your question reveals a foundational level misunderstanding. And so let me go back to the beginning. I don't want you to be uninformed, he says. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to understand. I can't just answer your one precise question. I have to give you a basic primer on spiritual gifts. And that's what we have here. We we have a, a basic primer on spiritual gifts. This is what Paul thinks we need to know if we're going to understand spiritual gifts. This is what Paul thinks we need to know if we are going to use those gifts properly for the end that they were designed. And so what is it that Paul wants us to know? What is it that Paul thinks is is basic to understanding spiritual gifts? That's the question that is before us. That's the question that we're going to be seeking to answer. We're going to be trying to pull out the, the, the points that Paul makes over the next few weeks as we, as we work our way through this chapter. What is it that Paul thinks we need to know? And obviously this is important. This is important to us as we've seen over the course of the last couple of months. We have all been called to ministry. We have all been called to, to that work of service that builds up the body of Christ. And we all have that innate sense that we can't do this on our own. We're only going to be able to do this if we use the power of the Spirit that has been given to us. And so if we are going to do the work that we've been given to do, we have to understand spiritual gifts. We can't just set this issue aside and say, well, that's for, that's for a whole other denomination of Christians. No, this is for us. This is for us that we might do that which we've been called to do. So let's, let's look at it and let's see if we can begin to decipher what it is that Paul thinks we need to know if we are going to do the work that we've been called to do. And there are several truths, just beginning in verses 1 through 11, that I think we need to pull out, starting with what Paul says right there in verse 3. The first and most basic thing that Paul wants the Corinthians to know about spiritual gifts is that the Spirit who empowers spiritual gifts, the the Spirit who, who gives spiritual gifts, is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit who gives gifts is the Spirit who exalts and honors and magnifies the Lordship of Christ. They cannot be played off one another. Notice what he says. He says, I want you to understand... That no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
So there are, there are two basic propositions there. And it's important that we, that we look at both of them. The first thing he says is that no one can say Jesus is accursed in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. The the Holy Spirit will never lead anybody to deny the Lordship of Christ. The the Holy Spirit will never lead anyone to to call Jesus accursed. The the Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars. It doesn't have a dark side. It can't be used for good or, or evil. But rather, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit who honors the Father and exalts the Son. That is who the Spirit is. The Spirit never does anything other than honor the Redeemer of God's elect, the the Son whom the Father put forward as the atonement for our sins. No one can say Jesus is accursed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, to most people today, that sounds a little bit over the top. They're like, well, of course. You know, I wasn't thinking about saying Jesus is accursed. You know, that wasn't really on on our radar. Most people today think Jesus was a pretty good person. Even non-Christians, even those people outside the, the church, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed. You'll find a few. You know, you'll find a few people like Hitchens who are saying, you know, God is not great and Jesus is a bad guy and he's what's wrong with human history. But, but those are rare. For, for the most part, you know, even people who, who subscribe to other religions tend to think Jesus is a pretty good God. They, they, some even think that he was sent by God. Some even will acknowledge that, that he worked miracles. And so, people today, they're, they're not really interested in saying Jesus is accursed. But we have to understand what Paul means. We, we have to understand that, that what Paul is, is saying is bigger than just actually uttering the words, Jesus is accursed. Because under that heading, Paul includes those, those people who think he's a good guy, but deny that he's the Lord. Those people who who think he's a a good guy, but deny that he is God incarnate, come as the Savior of sinners. And and he believes that because that's what Jesus himself taught. Remember, we saw this in Luke's Gospels. It's been a long time since we've been in Luke's Gospel, but, but maybe you can remember back to what Jesus himself said. Jesus himself said, if you are not for me, you are against me. And who was he talking to when he said that? He, he was talking to the crowds. He was, he was talking to the crowds that were gathering to hear him, to the crowds who were impressed with his miracles, to the crowds who, who liked to listen to his teaching. And he warned them. He said, listen, guys, if you're not for me, if you do not acknowledge me as Lord, then you are against me. If you do not bow to me as king, you make yourself my enemy. You see, when someone claims to be king, there are only two options. Either you acknowledge them or you oppose them. There is no third option. And Jesus says, if you are not for me, you are against me. And so when Paul says that no one can say Jesus is accursed, he's talking about more than just those who blatantly, explicitly, out front curse Jesus. He's talking about all those who disregard his claims to be king, who disregard his lordship. And so if someone denies or or someone just simply fails to to recognize Jesus as Lord, as the Son of God and the the Savior of sinners, then Paul says we can know that person is not spiritual. Now that's a little bit offensive in our day and age. But it's what Paul says. If someone does not acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, that person does not have the Holy Spirit working in them. It's as simple as that. 
If you do not acknowledge Jesus Christ, I don't care how moral you are, I don't care how ethical you are, I don't care how good a guy you are, I don't care how sincere you are. If you do not acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you do not have the Holy Spirit working in you. Think think about what that means. Let's let's work that out just just a little bit. That means that, that displays of power... The things that we often associate with the Holy Spirit. Those, those displays of power, whether they be prophecy, whether they be tongues, whether they be miracles, whether they be exorcism, whatever it is, those displays of power are not proof of the Spirit's empowering. There are other spiritual forces. There are other spiritual powers in this world that can do things that looks something like the Holy Spirit to our human eyes. And this has always been the case. God warned the people of Israel that this was true all the way back in in Deuteronomy 13. Back in Deuteronomy 13, He's he's telling the people how they will know who the true prophets are. And we, we tend to think of Deuteronomy 18 when we think of the test of a prophet. The test of a prophet is that their words come true. And that's what God says in, in Deuteronomy 18. But there's another test, Deuteronomy 13, where He says, listen... There will be people who will come to you and they will say things that will come true. And they will do things that are really impressive. And they will have these displays of of power. He says, but if they tempt you to go after another God, if they deny that Yahweh is Lord, if they deny that I am the only rightful king of my people, if they entice you to worship anyone else, they are false prophets. They are not sent from me. They are empowered by someone other than the Holy Spirit. And so displays of power by themselves are not enough. And and the people of Israel ought to have known this already because they saw it in Egypt. Have you ever read through those early stories in the the book of Exodus and you see Moses doing these great things? You're like, yes, God is going to win. And then then the Egyptian magicians do the same thing. And you're like, what? How'd they pull that off? Why is that true? And and eventually, of course, God's power overwhelms. but, But there's at least for a time... The magicians of Egypt can can sort of copy, they can sort of mimic what Moses is is doing, but they're not for God. They're not for Yahweh. They they aren't for the Lord, and so therefore we know that they are not empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so there are other spiritual powers, and, and power by itself is not proof that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this same warning echoes throughout the New Testament. This is why John has to tell the believers that they are to test the spirits. You need to test the spirits. You need to see whether or not these spirits are truly from God. Do they acknowledge Christ? Do they proclaim Him as Lord? Do they point to Him as the only name under heaven given by which men must be saved? And so the the first and most basic test of the Holy Spirit's presence and empowering is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is that who is being exalted? Is that who is being magnified? Is it Jesus Christ who is being honored? That is the test of the spiritual. And notice how Paul puts it here. He says it's the Lordship of of Jesus. He doesn't doesn't say Christ, and I I think that's intentionally. He points to the humanity of of our Savior. He, He points to Jesus, His human name. He says, it was that flesh and blood man 
That flesh and blood lad who, who lived in Palestine in the first century, that, that man who, who you know, built chairs and tables when he was, when he was younger, that, that man who, was, who then taught and, and used his hands to, to heal and to feed, that man who was then arrested and beaten and bled, that man who was crucified, who was died, who was buried, that man who rose again bodily from the dead. That man, that flesh and blood man, that is Jesus. He is the Lord. Not some spiritual other But the man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God incarnate. He is the one who has come to save His people from their sins. And if you do not acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you are not spiritual. You do not have the Holy Spirit. It is that simple. But there's a second test here that that Paul gives us. Not only do we, if we deny Jesus, do we deny the Spirit, but notice what he says next. He says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So if you're in the Spirit, you're not going to curse Jesus. You're not going to deny that He is Lord. But if you do acknowledge that He is Lord, if you do confess Him as Savior, then that is proof that you are in the Spirit. You can't do that except by the power of the Spirit. Now, when I was younger, those words always confused me because I was like, you know, does that mean if you, you can't even mouth the words? Is that God going to physically stop your tongue from working? Well, of course not. Of course not. Paul does not mean that, that a person cannot mouth the words. Paul himself speaks of false brothers secretly brought in. False brothers who falsely confessed that Jesus is Lord in order that they might spy out what was going on. Paul knew about false testimony. He knew about false professions of faith. That, that can't be what Paul means. But would rather what Paul is saying is that a person cannot sincerely earnestly acknowledge the lordship of Christ. A person cannot honor Christ as Lord in their heart and in their lives apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. By nature, we are dead in our sins. By nature, we are lovers of darkness. By nature, we are hostile towards God. And it is only by the working of the Holy Spirit, it is only as the Holy Spirit invades our hearts and transforms us from the inside out that we can acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And that means that all who acknowledge Jesus, all who confess Him sincerely as their Lord, all those who honor and serve Him with their lives, that all those have the Spirit. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if He is your Savior, if He is the one in whom you have trusted, if you you have received and are now resting upon Him for your salvation, then you have the Spirit. And if the person sitting next to you in the pew has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and has rested upon Him for the Savior, then they have the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. If you see someone confessing and honoring Jesus Christ as Lord with their lives, they have the Spirit. And therefore, we should not invent some other test. We, we should not invent some other criteria by which we are going to determine whether or not they're truly spiritual. We, we should not demand further evidence. If a person confesses Christ as Lord, he or she has the Spirit. It's what Paul says explicitly in Romans chapter 8. He says, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. And so we can put these two pieces together. If anyone denies the Lordship of Christ, they do not have the Spirit. But if anyone acknowledges the Spirit of Christ, they are filled with the Spirit. They they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
So if you deny Christ, you don't have the Spirit. No matter how impressive your works are, no matter how powerful you seem to be. But on the other hand, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you are filled with the Holy Spirit no matter how unimpressive you seem to be to others. Now this has profound implications for those who are sure that they have the Spirit. You know, if you are sure that you have the Holy Spirit, you need to ask yourself, is the Spirit in me exalting the glory of Christ? Is that the Spirit's business? Is that what the Spirit is doing? Because otherwise, maybe, maybe your confidence is misplaced. If your confidence rests on the fact that, that God has done some pretty amazing and powerful things through you, that's not the test. The test is, is the Spirit moving you to to bow the knee before Jesus Christ and to confess Him as your Lord and Savior? Because Jesus said there are people who do impressive things. There are people who prophesy. There are people who heal. And I don't know them. The signs are not the test. Is the Spirit in you moving you to confess and, and honor Christ as Lord? Of course, this also has profound implications for those who doubt that they have the Spirit. There, there are some who, who say, well, you know, I've never done anything like that. I've, I've never done anything impressive. I, I, I've never done anything powerful. I'm just sort of an ordinary kind of person. And Paul says, listen, have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? That's not ordinary humanity. That's not normal. That's supernatural. If you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is proof that Jesus, uh, through His Spirit, is at work in you. Again, think of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that the, the, the power of God, the immeasurable power of God, is at work, who? In those who believe. Those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so, if you have believed, you could know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. It's what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, when I look at the Thessalonians, I know that they are a people chosen and loved by God. Why? Because they received the gospel when it was proclaimed to them. And that is supernatural work. That is fruit of the Spirit. And of course, finally, this has profound implications for the way these two groups relate to one another. Those who are confident and those who are, who are not. Those who doubt should not be too impressed with those who who seemingly have power if they do not honor Christ. And those who are proud should not despise the weak if they confess Christ as their Lord. Because it boils down to this. If you have confessed Christ, you have the Spirit. If you honor Him as your Lord and Savior, then He is at work in you. But on the other hand, if you do not honor Christ as Lord, it doesn't matter how impressive your works. It doesn't matter how great the things you do. If Christ is not exalted by your life and your testimony, then you are not spiritual. That's the bottom line. And so as we begin, and and obviously we're not going to get very far this morning, but as we begin and we we look at this chapter on, on spiritual gifts, we start there. We start with that fundamental truth. That the gifts of the Spirit are all about Jesus. The gifts of the Spirit are all about His Lordship. The gifts of the Spirit are all about exalting Him and extending His kingdom. And if you are one of His, then those gifts have been given to you and you can use them to serve your Lord. 
But if you are not about Jesus, if you are not about honoring Him, if you are not about exalting His majesty, then I don't really care how impressive your works. You're not spiritual. You don't have the Holy Spirit at work in you. And so our prayer this morning for one another is that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. Yes, we want the Holy Spirit, but we want the Holy Spirit so that our Lord can be exalted. It has been said that the, uh, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who sort of hides in the background. He, he never puts Himself forward. He always exalts Christ who exalts the Father. Not because He's less God, but because He delights in the glory of Christ. He delights in the Father's plan of redemption. He delights in all the good that the Father uh, has planned for us from before the foundations of the world. And so He points away from Himself to others. May we learn to do the same. May we, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, may we desire spiritual gifts. May we desire to be empowered. But may we desire to be empowered for the sake of the glory of His name. Can we pray that way? Let us pray that way now. Father God, we do ask that You would indeed, by Your Spirit, empower us to confess Christ. That You would, by Your Spirit, empower us to exalt Him as our Savior and Lord. May we not desire spiritual gifts as, as means in their, their own, as ends in themselves. May we not desire them because they're cool and, and, and they, they make us look good. But may, may we desire them because we've been given work to do, Father. Because we've been called into the service of Your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we need the immeasurable power of God if we are going to do what we've been given to do. And so for the sake of Jesus' name, Father, we ask that you would pour out your Spirit on us, that you would fill us to overflowing, and that you would equip us to do all the good works which you have prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.